0: Hi, this is Robert O'Reilly.
1: My name is Gowron. Honor to you and your house. You're listening to Trek FM. T.O. Grayhawson. And welcome to another episode of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Amy Nelson, and joined with me today is Richard Marquez. Yay! Now, while Richard and I were on a way mission, we found a replica of Lee's head. Lee is missing. So we have enlisted the help of Justin Ozer to solve this mystery. Justin, we're so glad to have you. Would you like to say hi to our listeners?
2: Hello, everyone. Very happy to be here. And uh, I hope we do find out what happens, uh, what happened to Lee's head so that in the future he can come on the show again. Yeah.
1: Yes, we do miss him, uh, and so we will have him hopefully back next week. So today's episode is Time's Arrow part one and part two. And uh, we had this suggestion by Justin. And uh, we all agree that Time Zero is a good episode, a good set. And uh, in the past, it's been maligned to not be so good. And so we're here to set the record straight about that. So Richard, why don't you uh, give us a quick synopsis and rundown of what time zero part one and part two is about and then we'll get on to our discussion
0: absolutely and i'll just read it off a memory alpha an engineering team finds evidence of an alien presence on earth in 19th century san francisco data's head severed, severed head buried 500 years ago and this is the season finale for uh is it a season five. four? Three, five. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so see it's a this is the season uh season finale for season five and the opening of season
2: six. So awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you guys like it. <laughs>
0: I, no, I, it's it's a it's a really good episode. Uh, I remember watching it as a kid, and it was one of those episodes that were very interesting to have like a Mark Twain twist to it, uh, or um, you know, Mark Twain in, in, uh, added into the actual, uh, um, I guess, into into the future or something like that. I mean, it's a really interesting, um, very interesting uh, episode. Coming, I mean, um, I mean, I don't want to take too much of, of it, but I mean, obviously, you know. Aliens going into the past to basically kill off people that are already dying, like uh, maybe blue like plague or polio or cholera, or, you know, one, a cholera, exactly. Uh, or even smallpox. I mean, once they're dead, what do you I mean, if they're going to harvest their body and they're already dead, then why not?
1: Well, I do have to say that they were very considerate to go on a time where there was an outbreak, uh, you know, where people were already dying. I guess we could give them the benefit of the doubt for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, it definitely uh, I, I liked it as a I definitely liked it as a kid. And, you know, it's it's I still like it now. I, 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 yeah.
1: I yeah. really like it because it's memorable. I mean, you can, whether you like it or you hate it, if anyone says next generation time zero, you know exactly what episode it is. And for that, you've got to give it props.
0: What do people say when, uh, when you when you hear about it? When when they say or you know when they talk about the episode, what do, what do they say about it?
2: Well, I'll tell you what I've heard. What I've heard is that they think Mark Twain is really annoying, and that even the the cast members think he's annoying and keep shooting him glances that that he should just shut up. But you know what? I I love it. I think that the Mark Twain is charming, and I think it's actually true to his character if you if you read what what he was writing because he could be kind of. A, You know, a a, a curmudgeon or, you know, uh, really skeptical of certain things, uh, really worried about the impact of of technology. So I I actually like that and I find it uh, to be a really charming, charming character. And one of the things I like about the episode as well is that someone might correct me if I'm wrong about this on the Babel conference, but I think this is the only Star Trek episode where we actually go. To the 19th century. It's not something on the holodeck like the Sherlock Holmes episodes. It's not like an alien illusion like in the TOS episode Spectre of the Gun. It's not like a society that's based on the 19th century America like in the Enterprise episode North Star. They're actually going there. To the 19th century. And I find I'm a bit of an American history buff and I find the 19th century to be really fascinating because there are all of these important inventions that were happening. Electricity going to homes, the, the light bulb, sound recording, cars and phones and things like that. But at the same time, it was a time of great change. There was a lot of income inequality. There were still disease to be eradicated. So there are all of these things going on. You get certain references and hints to that in the episode. But I find it to be a pretty rich and fascinating time in American history. And I like that they they go there and they're kind of really a part of that.
1: Yeah, going off that, one of the things that I really liked was uh, Troy and Clemens conversation when they he was up on the enterprise and uh, he was you know saying oh this future thing is terrible you've got too much technology like you were saying that you know there are a lot of people who are suspicious about technology and what it's going to do and and he was saying can't even open the door for a lady you know because these doors open automatically and and basically commenting that you're removing the basic human interaction with each other and then we Get our lovely Deanna Troy explaining the 24th century utopia society, as we've talked about previously, you know, and so she just sort of says, well, there has been uh, poverty has been eradicated and just what the 24th century and how blissful it is and that there's no slavery and that we have multiple species thousands of species that we're interacting with and and so I like that you know she does sort of give a rundown of how it is in the 24th century and then Clemens is like well maybe this is worth giving up cigars for you know that maybe it's not that bad you know and has that change of heart
2: (laughs) yeah I, I I love that part because um I think, as I said in the Babel conference before, I, I love kind of the idealistic uh, future that they're, that they're talking about, a better future for us to, to strive for. And you see this, this um, difference between what was going on in the 19th century and, and bringing someone from that period and seeing what it's like hundreds of, of years later. I just really like that, um, that, that aspect of it. And actually, like in that conversation... The Twain character has some some really you know vivid ways of putting it. He talks about you know the wealthy standing on the backs of the poor and things like that. He just puts it in these stark terms, and they make a reference in the episode as well to a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which is one of Twain's novels that was published a little before this, where somebody goes from the 19th century back into the the Middle Ages in England, and they bring all of this technology and basically destroy the society, and there's an apocalyptic war that happens because of that. So so his way of thinking is that technology could be extremely dangerous and to see it being used for, for good purposes, I, I I just love that part and I think it's really interesting.
0: I just had a flashback of Time Cop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've never seen that movie, Amy? No. I don't think oh, I have, Oh, man. But, uh, okay. <laughs> but I get the idea, yeah. is it like apocalyptic? Yeah, well, yeah, it, you know, so, just to give you a synopsis of that one. It's basically a cop going back in time, trying to find this guy who's uh, killing people with basically higher technology or you know better, more advanced technology and um, and whatnot. So, yeah. It's a very, uh, it's a total recallish kind of movie.
2: Yeah, but that's also something that makes Twain really appropriate here, because that was one of the very first time travel novels was Connecticut Yankee, which was in 1889. And he was very influential in kind of helping to to, to launch all of that. And of course, time travel is so important in, in Star Trek. I don't know, so... I guess getting back to the original point, I think a lot of people are annoyed by Twain, but I think it's charming. And I think the depiction is is, is right on. And it actually adds a lot to the episode. And Jerry Hardin, who played Mark Twain, uh, he enjoyed it so much that he actually did a one-man show on Mark Twain on and off for about 15 years. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. I think, and I think he did a great job of, of kind of channeling what you see in in a lot of his writings
1: since we are talking about writers i do like the uh bellboy jack jack and then who ends up yeah. being jack london oh can follow your dreams and go off to alaska and then we get uh into the wild. the wild yeah the wild. Oh, who hasn't read actually, that book
2: <laughs> it's a, it's i had a to read book. it
1: in middle school
2: yeah, yeah,
0: I yeah. That's one of my favorite books as a uh, as a child. Uh, yeah, I I absolutely love that part. Of the I mean, even though it was like a few seconds, but still, it was. Um
2: yeah, I love that part. Yeah.
1: I know it was really nice just to get that little reference, and it's like, oh yeah, I do know Jack.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I find yeah, I find the Jack London character really charming as well. But you know, so they're going back into this into this period, and they have Twain and and Jack London meet. And it turned, I was doing a little research. It turns out it's very very unlikely that they ever um, met each other. That Twain was even in San Francisco at the time because he was trying to pay off some debts in in Europe. But um, for those kinds of things that seem like historical inaccuracies, I actually have an explanation for it that that I've been thinking of. So Ooh, do tell. <laughs> <laughs> so the way that I think about it is that everything that happens in in Star Trek is not actually happening in in our timeline. So the one that you know, you and I share and everybody who's going to be listening to this podcast, it's actually an alternate timeline that has a lot of of similarities to to our own, Um, but there are differences in things that happen in different periods of history when they go back in time. So I think of it as something separate and that helps me to explain Mm -hmm. other things like the eugenics wars and, you know, the millennium gate and Voyager that clearly doesn't exist. So I think of this all as taking place in something that's very similar, but actually separate from the world that we're really living in. So all of those discrepancies, I, I can explain them away. <laughs> Just happens oh, a little differently. Okay.
1: Yeah. So like even sitting on the edge of forever, when they go back, mm-hmm. that sort of has changed the timeline. So it's not ours. It's a parallel.
2: Well, the, the original timeline that they're in isn't even ours, right? So there's some right, similar right. things that happen with, you know, world war two and the depression and all of that. But, um, Any change or anything that happens doesn't affect us. I mean, I think in personally in Star Trek, we've never actually seen our own uh, universe, our own timeline, but something that's very similar uh, to our own. So... Huh. works for me. Very
1: nice. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah, no, like no, yeah, it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I like
0: it as well. Jeez. It's yeah, going I mean, in it, my head
1: cannon right now. Oh,
0: good. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I smell, I smell something burning <laughs> in my, in my head. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about tight travel here, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah. And yeah. you know what, I, what I like about this episode as well is one of the writers is, is Joe Manoski and I don't know how, familiar you guys are with how off the wall Joe Minoski's ideas are, but he's the guy who, who wrote uh, uh Darmok, which is of course, I love that episode. And it's a very um, unusual concept. And this is an unusual concept too. Hey, data's heads in San Francisco, 500 years ago, what's going on with that. And he just has like a, in the, he's written, he wrote a number of next generation episodes and Voyager episodes. And a lot of them are just kind of really, Um, unusual off the wall kind of of concepts and I just like seeing those kinds of things. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But um, I'm excited also that he's going to be uh, writing for Discovery so we'll see what kind of odd things come out. Yeah, I heard that and I
1: was like, yay! A lot of people don't like masks. Another one of his... um, I like it. I like it too!
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's fun.
1: I do too and it is. It's just so off the wall and... Again, one of those that you remember. You say masks, and you know exactly what it is. So, yeah. That crap episode that Damien likes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> You're outvoted two to one.
1: That's right.
0: Uh, <laughs> Lee's got some kind of FC uh, voter here or something yeah. like that. Or no, no, that's his head on the ground. No.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so he only gets one fifth of a vote.
0: Uh. <laughs> You know, he was actually. I'm. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned to him because he actually was the one who inserted the number 47 to his scripts as That's well. That's right. It was
2: because of Minoski that we get so many 47 references in TNG yep. and and later. Do you, have you read the background hmm. on that? It's kind of interesting.
1: No.
0: What? Uh, I, I I I know about the number 47 putting into his scripts, but the backstory. No, I do not. Well, so ap- why don't you tell yeah, us? Yeah, apparently, when
2: Minoski <laughs> was in in uh, in college. If I'm remembering right, it was Claremont College in Southern California. He had a professor that had this pet theory that the number 47 appears more than other any other number in the universe. So he decided to, Minoski kind of took that and decided to, to start inserting that into scripts to kind of make that real. And then other writers too started, uh, started picking up on that so that you get you know, all these references through TNG and DS9 and Voyager. I think there's a few in Enterprise too. But yeah, it was this odd hmm. theory that 47 appears more than, than other numbers and he just kind of made it true by inserting it in the scripts.
1: Hmm. You have piqued my mathematical mind. That's interesting. I'd never heard that before.
0: You you just made a lesson plan for her.
1: Yes.
2: <laughs> well, th- actually, there's there's another part to it. This professor thought it was forty-seven and seventy-four that appeared more for whatever reason. I don't know, but
1: a palindrome.
2: <laughs> yeah. So that's where that that. Uh... That comes from so, I, but I, I like Minoski because you know even if it's something that works, he took a chance and and you know gave it a try with something that's that's unusual, um, and you know oftentimes it works out and you get something you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So I I really like that and that's the case with this episode because I think it's it's really unusual. Like what other episode has you know a literary figure as as a uh, as a big player in a Star Trek episode? I can't really think of one so it, I think it's just fun to do that and for him to you know uh spout off all of these arguments and ways of of uh seeing the world
1: yeah and I like that again talking about literary figures that Guinan is a literary figure in in that uh time period as well and so
0: right and we also somewhat get a a feel of why uh or how she knows Picard already so yeah uh yeah I mean, it doesn't truly explain it, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I really like the interplay that, you know, on the Enterprise-D, Guinan's like, no, you need to go back. And then he goes back and then she doesn't remember him, you know? And so it's like, well, the first time, Picard doesn't know what's going on. And then when they go back, Guinan doesn't know what's going on. So that interplay between that, I really find that interesting too.
2: Yeah, Um, I love that as well because Guinan's one of my favorite Characters because she's so mysterious and and wise and is often giving really great counsel and being able to see, you know how they first meet at least from from Guinan's perspective is is um, is really great and I think there's a scene toward the very end where Picard sees Guinan after the adventure and they just kind of share a look like. Ah, now we know.
1: I know. Now How hard know. would that be to meet up with Picard in the 24th century and have to remain quiet and not say anything until season five? Yeah. You know?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I don't know if Picard even has any idea that that there was something else that was going on, because I think they, you know, from his perspective, first met in, in their days on the, the stargazer, I think is the implication. But I don't know if he even really knew until this episode that there was more. And
1: right, exactly, and so yeah. for Guinan to remain quiet and not disturb the timeline in any way was pretty awesome. It'd be so hard to do. Yeah, Although that's a big secret to keep.
2: Although she does, she does kind of push it forward on the timeline, though, because she's like, "You have to go." Because he doesn't want to go, he's like, ah, why do I need to go on this away mission?" But you have to go, or otherwise we'll never meet. And I think you get this look from Picard, like. Oh boy! I sure wouldn't want that to happen. I, I love having you in my life, so I guess I have to go on this thing and trust you. And I yeah. love the trust that they have because you know there are other episodes like yesterday's Enterprise, where right. Picard is has to be pushed, and he's like, "Well, I wouldn't do this for anybody else, but I'll trust you, and I'll, you know, sacrifice the ship of people." So there's something really special between them that I kind of wish we would have uh, gotten more exploration of.
1: Yeah. Well, and because Picard trust her so does everyone else on the crew you know when she comes on and Riker is that still yesterday's enterprise and Riker's like and you've never been on the bridge before um you know and so there is that implicit trust because of Picard's trust in her that filters down to the rest of the crew and I really like that even Jordi has mentioned you know that he trusts her as well
2: yeah definitely
0: um I I got none You guys said everything that I was already thinking.
2: I'm like, oh, okay, all right, I'll just sit here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I wanted to, if I could, talk about something else. So, like in in part one when you know, they first make this this discovery of, of Data's head, there are all of these these different scenes where people are talking to him like, doesn't this make you uncomfortable that you're gonna, you know, that you're gonna die, that you know that this thing's gonna happen to you? Um, and he actually has a really good conversation with Geordi where Geordie's asking him about that and it, I just took some notes on it and he says he, he finds it really comforting because he expected to, you know, outlive the friends he has, make new friends and just, you know... Th- possibly live forever but for him there's a comforting moment because it says you know I'm I'm no different from anyone else I'm one step closer to being human and that's just a really great moment for him because he gets this you know sense of peace out of it because he's wanted to be human and this gives him one step closer if if he's going to die now of course at at the end of the episode he is going to continue so so it's still open ended like that until um amy's favorite movie uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I don't know but but also I don't know I didn't think about this beforehand, but after the the end of the episode data is wearing a 500 year old head for the rest of his life so he has like (laughs) he has on his shoulders this reminder that there is that possibility of mortality so i have to think that it it kind of still gives him some some comfort there but but i think that's that's just a great a great scene for him to talk about you know the possibility of living forever i mean it doesn't seem like he's really he can't be at this point sad about it but um, it gives him some kind of comfort to know that, that he's no different and there will be some kind of end at some point. Which Because you, you don't really deal with what, it a nemesis as much with that anticipation or the way people feel about it. And I love the way that they deal with it in the first part here.
1: Yeah. I also had that on my notes to talk about that. Yeah. His quest to be human is now one step closer um, because of his mortality and he knows that there will be an end. Um, And I really did appreciate that. And I, again, but a little side note, like so, when they find the head, there's a certain percentage of degradation, and so he's living with that degraded.
2: No, it's head. okay. Jordy jordi used his magic instrument to fix it.
1: Oh, okay, <laughs> all right,
0: good. So he yeah, got
2: a grafted skin or something his, like that. His,
0: something that's a polymer that lasts forever or something. Yeah, like
2: that. Just, you know, it was just degraded a, a little bit on the outside, but it's cosmetic. You just put a new skin on, no problem. <laughs>
1: Oh, okay. So I thought it was the circuits and stuff.
2: I'll just paint them. You you're good. Yeah. Just have a little air blower inside there. Like get all the the dirt and dust out. The dust. Yeah.
1: (laughs) The little spray can.
2: (laughs) Oh my goodness.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I liked, uh, sort of going on with that, uh, with Troy and Riker when they're in the turbo lift and, you know, you really see Riker's anger and his emotion that he's, upset that he's going to be losing his friend. And Troy relates it to, you know, having, knowing someone has a terminal illness, you know, and I like how it just real quick brings in another social commentary on like, how do, how do we as a society deal with a loved one who has a terminal illness, you know, and we get to see Riker's interpretation of being upset and angry. And, um, I was just wondering, how have you dealt with someone who's had a terminal illness? Myself, my grandmother uh, passed away of Alzheimer's, and, you know, that's just... Oh, but she lived a good old age, and so for for her passing there, it was a relief, you know, And because she had lived 93 years, and so that was good. And so we get to see... I wasn't angry, so I didn't have that relationship of what Riker was feeling. Um, so I wanted to know what you guys have dealt with that.
2: Oh, well, yeah, I had a couple of things. I mean, the, um, I mean the example that I think of my, my grandfather had Alzheimer's and he was kind of you know, slowly flipping away when I was, when I was a kid to the point where, you know, he couldn't remember who you, who you were, which was kind of, it was a sad situation. But this situation is different because data seems, you know, healthy and there's there's no illness. I mean, I think the talking about it as like a terminal illness is actually right because there's, you know, some kind of expiration date that's coming up in the future for him. But, but um, it's a little bit different. And I think it's interesting to see Riker's passion in this episode because at a certain point they have to take a big risk and they're like, is this really worth it? And they're like, data is the only thing that matters here. This is worth it. We have to do this. And I think it's such an interesting contrast from, you know, let's say when they first met an encounter at Encounter Farpoint, when when uh, Riker's just amused by data, like, oh, hello, Mr. Pinocchio, who's whistling here. He's just kind of a an amusement or a curiosity. But now he's someone that's so important and so integral to the crew. And you see that in the different conversations that that. Uh, that data has, he's become somebody that's really important. They think of him as you know just as as um, as sentient and important as as everybody else because of everything that's happened over the the previous years. So I think it's an interesting reflection on on his character and how he's been able to really connect with everybody in the in the five years before.
0: You know, I, I wonder actually. So we're able to uh, like reattach his head onto the on on, on basically his body and then basically he, he can continues on to the rest of the season or uh, throughout uh, season six and everything um, so why not just like reactivate the head (laughs) you know what i mean like uh so you could find out what the what's going on or what happened or something like that i don't know
2: that's just oh you mean i I was just thinking about that oh you mean but like instead of reattaching it um they should have just tried to like activate the head like you see in was it in disaster where riker's carrying around data's head (laughs) because he needs him to help (laughs) activate the engineering console yeah i mean i guess they could they could have done that or you know who knows if they couldn't reattach i mean it it would have ruined the story but yeah (laughs) but i don't know maybe they could have Data could have just been like a floating head for the rest of TNG. <laughs> I,
0: I yeah he very well could have been that would how interesting of a story would that be <laughs> I mean like put him on the console I'm like what do you think Data
2: and was like whoa <laughs> <laughs> yeah or give him like his own little anti-grav sled that he can just kind of go around the corridors <laughs> <laughs> he could be like
0: Star Trek's version of R2-D2 mm. <laughs> Oh God. Well, just to, you know, reel it back to what Amy was saying that, um, uh, you know, actually up until two years ago, I actually lost my grandmother and and grandfather one to a stroke, my grandfather and uh, the other one to, uh, uh, oh crap. Um, I can't remember what it was called. Um, it, was a, it was a cancer of some sort. I, I want to say it was um, no, no, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was uh, very sudden. Um, but like it's, she actually didn't uh, uh, know she had it until it was too late. So it was a matter of like weeks before before she uh, passed away. But before that, um, you know, everyone I knew that either passed away or died was all of a sudden. And most of them were because they're comp, they're veterans. Uh, everyone that I knew that was close to me. So before, and before that, I, I no one died in my family since 91. So yeah, it, yeah. It, it, and you know, it's kind of, I, I didn't even think of time zero as a terminal, uh, dealing with a terminal illness or anything like that. But like I said, two years ago, uh, that was really hard, uh, to deal with that. Uh, especially, um, you know, it's, you know, it's that close to the chest, my grandfather and grandmother, which I knew they were going to go sometime soon. It's, it was a matter of time and, you know, and they lived to their late eighties, which is fine. And I think that's a, that's pretty, that's pretty good. I mean, living up to your late eighties or even your early eighties, it doesn't really matter, um, is, is a pretty good run. Or at least I think so. So yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's a difficult time. Even, even, uh, I'm assuming, I would assume that there's, terminal illnesses because you can't stop aging. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, or at least if they do, then uh, sign me up.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective before amy and um but you do see like there are different reactions to it you know some of them are angry others just don't want to talk about it or don't know what to think or you know are in denial or have some some hope that he's going to to get out of it so i think they nicely show in a series of scenes like a range of different different reactions which is probably what would you know happen in in real life if someone had a terminal illness different people will react very differently to it
1: yeah and even data picks up it's like everyone's treating me differently you know I mean even when he walks in Troy and Riker t- instantly stop talking you know and so yeah that's a little awkward and you know and I love uh Troy's we've grown accustomed to your or no what does she say oh I forget uh anyway so she talks to him and says you know we and And then data's like oh well I like you guys too you know so that was sort of cute but you get that perspective you know not only of someone who's going to lose a loved one to data's perspective of someone who's going to be gone you know and so you get those two um, perspectives there and and how people deal with uncomfortable situation of death.
2: And of course data is fine with it. He's like he's (laughs) I mean Yeah. He's like, Oh, this is a real comfort. I'm just like you guys. Why can't you see it that way? Everything's fine. We're gonna let things play out. No problem. Everything's great and everybody's like, No, we don't wanna lose you And he's like, oh well, it's got to happen sometime. Um, so one thing that I think is interesting is that you know, there's also a scene where where Picard holds Data from going on the away mission because he he says, you know, I I just you know want to see what I can what I can do for you. And Data's like, you're being, being irrational. Conscious. Well, then I'll be irrational, <laughs> you know. And I think it's an interesting contrast to the way that Picard is in. Um, what's the episode I'm thinking about cause and effect where he's like, well, we just got to keep letting things play out as they, as they could. We, we're not going to reverse or go anywhere else. But in this episode, he's because it's something that's personal. He's kind of making an exception that he's going to do the irrational thing and try to hold it back. If he possibly, if he possibly can, of course, you know, data has to go down anyway and it, it happens as, as it should. But, but Picard has this really, really, Personal connection that affects the way that he makes that decision. Whereas in other episodes, he's like, let's go on as usual. We don't know if, you know, making a change is going to make things worse. So, but he doesn't want things to go on as usual. And, I, I, you know, again, it's an example where, you know, everybody's really on um, the ship has really come to care for data a lot, where he was just, you know, some. A curiosity of an android at the very beginning. He's become something like someone who's very well loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well and we so. see
1: that uh, in the season two who times squared where it's Picard. And that's that same discussion, you know, Picard six hours in the future. And, you know, well, why would the captain leave the enterprise? And we need to make sure that doesn't happen. And well, we're not going to second guess ourselves now, you know, and, and and it's himself, you know, and still he remains true. And just we're going to do what we do. But yeah, we see that when it's data and, and he does change it. It's like, I'm going to be irrational because I'm not going to lose you type of thing. Thing.
2: well apparently Sound when it's when it's himself he's willing to to kill that self <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to save data but kill his duplicate which i mean yeah it's just interesting <laughs> these different situations how he handles it and you can almost see it like in his head in Times squared it's like should i kill him i really yeah. shouldn't do that but should i kill him okay i guess I, that's what i gotta do <laughs> whereas in in this one um yeah he he just doesn't want data to to go you know and and i think that we yeah we just see all of these ranges of emotions and ways of of dealing with it that i really like and that i would have liked to see kind of more of that in nemesis when he actually spoilers when he actually does die (laughs) um so i felt like i got more of that here and it was kind of satisfying to to see that and to think about it you know in the future
0: he doesn't die. <laughs>
2: well, yeah. More spoilers in the books. <laughs> he comes back, but
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Data
2: has a very complicated life. He's going back and forth. So he must yeah. be really confused by the end of it. Like, oh man, I, I just really want to be comforted by dying, but they're just not going to let me do it.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get off this show. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Jesus, let me die for- <laughs> Maybe that's why you know Brent Spiner was playing so many versions of of himself. He just wanted to make sure that he could keep going no matter what, in some character or other. <laughs> 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 oh my goodness! Oh, one. Uh, so one other thing I wanted to mention. Um, I I love in this episode. That when data is in nineteenth century uh, San Francisco that he gets into the poker game and it 's marco Lemo aka later gold ducat who 's one of the, the one of the poker players there and i I just love that that little that little scene and that uh, uh, wasn 't that also the beginning as well of the episode
0: it when they were doing the poker game
2: um it's uh, toward the middle of the episode, I think. It's after you know Data has gone on the away mission and gone back to the nineteenth century.
0: Oh, right, yeah, right, yeah. right, 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 Cause right. Because
2: they're they're just doing it like in this in this hotel, and and I love that you know Data has no money. He has no way of of uh, getting a hotel room, but he's like, "Oh, you have poker? <laughs> I can do that." It's really really charming. So, but I
1: yeah, there are fun bits of comedy throughout, especially with Data, you know, and when he wins. The big glute and <laughs> the bellhop puts out his hand, expecting a tip, and he shakes it. <laughs> <clears throat> puts out his hand again. Oh, you require money. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I would give him a high five.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, <laughs> there's all those great funny moments. And, you know, because I hadn't seen Time's Zero for a while, I was like, oh, it's that it's that fun episode and there's a lot of funny things. But it's mostly pretty serious except for, you know, a few jokes here and there. I was surprised kind of coming back to it this time how, how serious it was really dealing with, um, you know, with the possibility of Data's death and this, you know, threat to... Um, to um, the 19th century San Francisco, and to you know Earth in the 24th century. There's actually a lot at stake in, in this episode. Um, so I find it really interesting. I don't know if you guys know this, but this was Times Hour was originally supposed to be a one part episode, but they decided to stretch it into two parts because Deep Space Nine had just been announced, and they w- didn't want people to think that TNG was ending at season five. They wanted something that would say "to be continued," so they'd know it would keep going, even though Deep Space Nine was coming. So they, they had, I guess they kind of had to stretch things out a little bit, but it doesn't feel like it, it drags. I I feel like it's, there's a lot of great character moments and it just, it just kind of, um, you know, keeps, keeps its momentum going and it's really enjoyable and engaging even, even on a rewatch. And something else that apparently happened is, so Joe Minoski, um, you know, had written the the story for um, for part one, and uh, and then I think the teleplay was Michael Pillar, and then over that summer he decided to move to Europe and not really be involved in Next Generation. So he gave like some notes and an outline for the second part, and Jerry Taylor had to fill in the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So so Monast- so I think Jerry Taylor had like a pretty big con- contribution to, um, to to the second part, and and I don't know if you guys noticed, but um, uh, the reporter that's that's going up to Mark Twain is Alexander Enberg who plays uh, Torek and TNG and Vorik and in, um, in Voyager and he's Jerry Taylor's son so I always think that's oh. a fun little thing that that he I got did not know that yeah. that's
1: pretty cool get out of
2: my head Justin
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> no 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 yeah it, yeah
2: yeah <laughs> I ain't got nothing to talk about here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> He's the guest. So he gets, you know, first dibs on all the fun stuff. I was excited about stuff.
2: this. I was looking up all this stuff that I thought would be fun to, <laughs> to talk about. But, um, well, I, uh, yeah. So, so Richard, I know that, that, um, that you like this episode. Um, but, like, what do you feel... I mean, was it any different seeing it as an adult versus as as a kid? Were there, you know, things that you appreciate more, or things that you know were unexpected and you didn't remember?
0: Um, yeah, it definitely. Uh, it, um, I guess it, as a kid, I didn't understand uh, the relationship with guy and Picard, and that's that was the that was my main piece of it—the uh, difference between because uh, I I saw it more as a story for. Guinan and Picard. And obviously this is the starting point for them. And obviously we, we ta- we're we talking about like terminal illness or something like that. Or or, or we know that Data is going to die and, and whatnot. But I think that was the... I think that's what made it a little bit more special. And then going back and rewatching the previous episodes, it makes more sense. I don't know if they intended it that way or anything like that. It definitely makes sense now. Um, and to, and to um, take it into account of Time Zero. But yeah, I mean, definitely this this story is, I mean, it's a must, uh, it's a must story in order to explain some kind of a background between Picard and, and Guinan. Uh, my only, my only issue with this episode was the Davidians, uh, or the, it, it I, I believe that's how they pronounce yeah, the it. Davidians, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it, that was my only beef, uh, with it during, the seasons because we really don't hear about them after that. I mean, we see it on Star Trek Online because I know I I've, I've read the stories and and all that kind of stuff because I play Star Trek Online. But like and they and they um and they explain it just a little bit more and add more to and then they actually I think it was a TOS story that no 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 it was um um uh, uh is it Tribbles. Trouble with triples? Right. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it was. Yeah, because yeah. they were going back to K seven. Mm-hmm. That's right. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, it's it's that's that's the only thing I don't uh, didn't really like about it. Well, after the fact, but I mean, it was a great story. I absolutely love it. It it's great. Yeah,
2: yeah. I I um. Yeah, I have no problem with never hearing about these Davidians before or since, because I, the way I think about it is, you know, it's it's a it's a big galaxy. There's, you know, hundreds and thousands of star systems and, and species. What bothered me more actually is they introduced this thing in this episode, Triolic Waves, um, which are, you know, they're using for some kind of phase shifting to go into the past. The first time it's ever mentioned in Star Trek, never mentioned again. It would have been nice to have some mention of some impact of Triolic Waves, but they just kind made it up for this episode, and you I, I checked on memory alpha you just never hear about it anywhere again. who knows maybe in discovery though you know it'll the whole plot will be based on triolic waves but but uh that that's the only thing that kind of bothered me like they introduced this new thing and just you know never touch it again, whatever it is, triolic waves are. <laughs>
0: Trialic waves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't think I've ever, yeah, no, I've never heard of it. Uh, well, I've never heard of it after it's, this or before it's the this. Ol- so. I mean, it's literally <laughs>
2: the only reference that, that I could, that I could find. Um, but you know, what I find interesting, too, is like, how do they come up with these names? How is someone writing a script and they're like, I've got this new wave, what am I going to call it? It's, you know, try something, which sounds like there's three and it's a lot of great stuff. And oh, triolic. like we've never seen that before, because they have to make up these things that you haven't heard before, but sound kind of sciencey. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and realistic, and the creativity. Every time I watch an episode, I'm just like, "Oh my gosh, how do they even come up with all of this techno babble and futuristic names that we've never had?" It's like it—it it really is astounding
0: to me. Just to, yeah, it's, it's just like what Morgan Gendel was telling me uh, a, a few weeks back that you know they uh, were talking about bare end particles and you know rupts scraping out barnacles off of a ship, and that makes sense. And I'm sure that's exactly what they're thinking as well. But I, 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 don't, well, I don't know what they're talking about. In that case, like the, in this one. I
2: think, what was that Starship Mine? The the baryon sweep. Baryons are are real, like subatomic particles. So they sometimes they take things that are just you know real. But yeah, I'm always amazed they make things up. And it, you know, to my, to my mind, it just it sounds like it makes sense. I'm gonna go with it. And they have this thing that looks almost like some kind of weird joystick that the Geordi says is a phase discriminator that's going to get them back into the past. And, you know, they just make up these props to make it seem like there's something that, that, that they're doing with it. I think it's, it's very inventive to get you to believe it. And most of the time I can suspend my disbelief and be like, yep, yep. That's how it's, it's going to happen in the future or the alternate future that all of Star Trek takes place in as I think. (laughs)
0: Have you reversed uh, the polarity of the particle?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I know. That comes up so many times. Have you tried reversing the polarity? Oh, let me give that a try. I didn't think of that. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Always
0: seems to be the joke especially when they it talk, it talk about technical bab, uh, techno babble.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's especially funny when they do actually say that. Oh, uh, yeah. Cuz usually it's it's something else like recalibrate this or that, but they do talk about reversing the polarity sometimes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's their go-to answer just in case they don't know what's going on.
2: Yeah, it's like if oh. you tried rebooting your computer, it's kind of like that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's then the you're like, the that's the go-to, the IT guy like yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> one other thing I wanted to mention um, so one thing I I learned from this episode is and when I first saw it was a new word Ophidian which I had never heard before it's just a fancy name for a snake so you know if, if you're playing Scrabble with me or Words with Friends and I have those letters no matter how few points I'm going to use it <laughs> I just love the way that data will will just, you, you know, give all these fancy ways of saying things like igniting the midnight petroleum and stuff like that. Oh, um, yeah, I love that quote. Yeah, he'll be like, oh, it looks like they have an Ophidian, a snake. Yeah. <laughs> like, for the audience, they're like, what the heck is an Ophidian? Yeah. Um, but I, for some reason, that's one of the things I always remember and like look for that reference to Ophidian because it's just so unusual and you just don't hear it elsewhere. <laughs> Because uh, that, that's how they talk back in the 19th century, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how data All the talks. time I don't know if anybody... Well, he's a
1: Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: right. That's right. He is. That's right. And I was thinking when we saw this episode, like he says he's a Frenchman and and, in, was it the big goodbye? He says he's from South America. I guess for somehow with his weird complexion, he could be from anywhere. I don't know.
1: Exactly. I was thinking that. I was like, oh, Frenchman, that's in uh, reference. But then I'm like, no, he was from South America there. So yeah, he can just be uh, anything he wants to be, just not American. And somehow
2: (laughs) in the 19th century, people are like, oh yeah, look, and Marco Lemo's character or, you know uh, tests him and speaks French and it's like oh he speaks French back he must be from France there's no way that, <laughs> that, yeah, th- that there's passed anything my wrong test. here yeah. <laughs> yeah even though he looks like nobody they could have ever seen before he somehow passes so um, it's probably a good thing they didn't bring Worf huh? because that would have been hard to explain <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he he had some kind of disease and it deformed his face. <laughs> well, I'd I, like I, I i do not know. I suppose like in uh, the DS9 episode Trials and Tribulations I could just give him a hat or something. I don't know. I like a big hat that goes over his forehead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but in the American South, I don't think they've seen
0: uh a, 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 what is what would those um, uh Soviets wear all, uh, or at least they the uh, stereotypes to uh, Soviets with um you know, what those, those hat, those big ass hat oh, or the big, uh, big hats. Ones? Yeah. Yeah. They look like trap, uh, uh fur hey, trapper that, would, hats,
2: yeah. that would make sense. Not. You know, Worf's adopted parents are from Russia.
1: There you go. So
2: maybe he has one just sitting around in his closet that we've never seen. <laughs> 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 He's waiting for the right time. Yeah. It actually would have been really funny if he wore a hat like that when he met his parents and family. <laughs> 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 uh, anyway (laughs) that's hilarious
0: (laughs) well uh Amy do you have anything else
1: (laughs) uh no I was just gonna say um you know we did that uh recent episode on costumes and uniforms and this is definitely uh, a pair of episodes that really should get a shout out for their amazing costumes. I mean Guinan's dress is gorgeous and you know they even make reference uh, like when data comes oh you you must uh, have woke up in your pajamas or something and oh yeah I can see why you're confused let me get some you know clothes to match your century type thing and and uh, Beverly and her doctor outfit and Riker and his policeman and he got to do some action and you know throw down and fist fight and that was that was a fun little escape scene I really liked yeah. that with the horse and carriage or was it the car uh, there
2: was it was, it was a carriage yeah.
1: yeah and so I just thought all of their uniforms uh or costumes I guess in this were very creative and you could tell each one had their own you know Riker being the cop doctor the Uh, Crusher is her doctor, nurse. And what was Picard? Oh, the playwright practicing for his play. Oh, for
2: Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was fun. (laughs) It it actually did win uh, an Emmy for costume design and also an Emmy for hairstyling. So. They recognize that. I mean, I think they did actually like a really good job in, in the 19th century scenes and in, in the second part with all of the, the costumes and, and the hair and the street scenes. And the second part, they actually filmed it on um, like a newly created, what is it, like a New York backlot set. So they had this whole set that Paramount had just built and they just dressed it up for the 19th century. And I think it really helps the the, the feel of the whole thing. So yeah. yeah, they did a great job on that.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Any last comments?
2: I had one other comment. Um, I think one of the reasons I like this one as well is because I think the scale seems seems pretty big in everything that's happening. And there's these scenes like, you know, you see all of a sudden, you know, Riker in this policeman's outfit and, and you know, Crusher as a nurse. You have no idea how they got those outfits or how they got there. There's all of these like little bits in there where they they're like we're not even going to explain that. It just happened. So for me, it feels like there's a bigger scale and there's more to the story, more more going on. And, and I really like that aspect of it as well. They don't feel like they have to do that. And then toward the end, when, when Twain goes back to the 19th century, he just kind of comes into the cave and he's like, oh, I came all the way from Market Street, which if you know San Francisco, Market Street to, the presidio is is miles and miles so it's taken him a while to do that but they don't feel it's necessary to you know have him drop in there and show him like you know running over a couple of miles he just kind of appears so in my head it feels like there's a bigger story and there's more to be told there which i really like
0: there you go i have no comments on the uh, on the costumes really i mean yeah they're great but yeah I mean, I, I okay. I might as well say so. So yeah, I, I absolutely love actually datas. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a huge sucker for ties.
2: So <laughs> he's very well dressed.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Especially for Frenchman in the middle of America in the 19th century. Yeah, well, he's going
2: to a literary reception. He's got to dress up for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I wonder if he. You know, with with that big brain of his i'm sure i'm sure he would have he would know uh, to blend in or, or or at least or at least no french <laughs> you know uh, this is me
2: <laughs> so one of the reasons why i wanted to talk about it is this is actually my favorite tng two-parter um, and favorite,
1: favorite favorite. Yes.
2: Yes. Let me make, you're going wait, wait. that strong. Let me make a distinction. Let me make a distinction. So <laughs> oh, okay. wait, 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 wait. there's a caveat here. I
1: know the please, I, please I, clarify. I, I,
2: you guys need to see the look on Amy's it, face. It's like, Oh my God. <laughs> All right. So here's, here's the clarification. I make a distinction between the best and my favorite. For me, the best is the one that has the best impact, the best writing and acting. And it's just overall, you know, the, the, the best episode. So for two-parters, absolutely, you know, Best of Both Worlds, Redemption, Gambit, a whole bunch of the two-parters are better than this one. But this is my favorite because I love watching it over and over again. And I think it's a lot of fun. And I love that they're dropped into the 19th century. So that's why it's my favorite. But I'm in no way saying that it's the best TNG two-parter because it's not. <laughs> but it is my favorite. <laughs> she got you just she just she just gave you a thumbs up okay that makes sense (laughs) yeah but but for favorite i always consider it like which one is my go-to or i want to watch again and again or in my rewatch i'm like all right it's this episode because i know that like chain of command is amazing but i don't want to watch it all the time because it's brutal to watch you know but this one's always fun to watch so that's the difference
1: (laughs) Yeah, I like that distinction between best and favorite. That's fabulous. I enjoy Time Zero part 1 and part 2 and uh people that I know like my brothers when I got my Blu-ray they're like, "Let's watch Time Zero. And I'm like, y- "You know you're the minority in most of fandom who don't really <laughs> like Time Zero. And they're like, "Who cares? We like it." So, I too enjoy the episode. I think it's fun. It's definitely is something uh you can go to and just watch over and over. And I still i know i've seen it so many times but the time loop you know if you think about it too much time loops yeah but that aside it is a really fun episode pair of episodes i guess
0: yeah it's uh for me it's uh it's definitely a it's it's definitely a fun episode any episode that uh gets them out of the norm uh like, uh, you know, uh, being in 19th century clothing or even or even a 19th century uh, setting or any setting really outside of what they're uh, what the norm is outside the ship. Uh, it definitely is one of my uh, one of my favorites, because uh, I mean, I mean, I, I'm not going to go out as far and say it was my favorite, but I, <laughs> I it's right there in the top 10. <laughs> OK, <laughs> but like but like, yeah, it's uh, it, it, I, I absolutely like uh, anything that goes outside the norm. And uh, this is by far one of them. Yes. Know, we get to see their range of, uh, acting and it's, uh, it's brilliant. It really is.
1: Yes. Well, Justin, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on Earl Grey. Thank you so much. You, uh, do so much for us and are an associate producer on Patreon. So we appreciate you so very much.
2: Uh, thank you. It's been, it's been, it's been great. I've It's been such a great time because, you know, I've, I've uh, always wanted to talk about these episodes and to give them some love that they haven't gotten before. So I'm glad we could do that today
0: awesome and next time uh we'll ha- uh I'll, I'll definitely have more to say
2: because <laughs> yep. uh, you you destroyed me on research dude <laughs> i'm sorry i just like to be prepared with uh because because i me i've like half of the fun of watching it is looking up the stuff afterwards to find out how it was done and who did what and all of that so i just really i just really enjoy that aspect of it
1: so. Well, I'm sure we will have you on as a guest again in the near future and just feeling very confident. And we love all of your comments that you make in the Babel Conference. Um, yeah. So you're sort of everywhere now.
2: Oh, <laughs> thank you. I'm not quite Jeffrey Combs yet, but maybe I'll get there. <laughs>
1: Well, talking about finding Lee's missing head, oh, I mean, time's arrow isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on the network. Here's a quick look at what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM.
2: Previously on Trek.FM, to the journey.
0: Leola is a substitute for any ingredient he doesn't have. No sugar. Leola root. No bananas. Leola root. No coffee. Leola 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 root.
2: Saturday morning Trek. Roddenberry uh, was very involved with the first episode. And for that episode, we needed to come up with the derelict spaceship. And as a result, as the brand new guy on the on the crew <laughs> who had the spaceships and stuff in his uh, portfolio, I got the job of coming up with that ship. The 602 Club. Yeah, well, and also that X-24, Um, is really what he could have become, it's what he would have been if he had never escaped from Alkali in the first place, right? So it's not only facing who he had been, but what his
1: whole existence would have been like had he not been able to break away in the first place.
2: And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
1: You can listen to every show on the network at trek.fm with links for iTunes streaming services and a direct download link. This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPod, iPad, Kindle, Android, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. Thank you Audible for supporting Earl Grey and Trek FM if you are a weekly listener and would like to directly help earl gray please consider becoming a patron of trek fm at patreon.com slash trek fm you can choose a pledge level and receive rewards for example five dollars a month gets you into our patron zone you get exclusive content and access to our early release of all of the shows at the fifteen dollar a month you get to participate in our monthly roundtable discussions they are so much fun and that's how i got started on the network at 25 dollars a month you get associate producer credits for any podcast you choose at this time we would like to thank our current patreon associate producers michael huter and justin ozer thank you for supporting earl gray Another way to help out the network and get cool stuff is to visit Redbubble at redbubble.com slash shop slash Trek FM. You can find amazing designs for T-shirts, pillows, phone cases and more. And with each purchase, a portion of the sales goes to Trek FM. Connect with other Trek FM listeners on our Facebook discussion group called The Babel Conference. You can search that on Facebook, B-A-B-E-L, or you can like the Facebook.com slash Trek FM page for show updates and other announcements. The network is also on Twitter at Trek FM. If you would like to contact Lee, Richard, or me... Amy, visit trek.fm slash contact to send us a subspace message or find us on social media. So Justin, where can people find you on the internet?
2: Well, uh, if people would like to find me, um, they can find me on Twitter. I'm at trekfan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And they can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook.
1: Yeah, you do um, tweet a lot about DS9, I've noticed. I'm just saying. It's
2: because I'm doing my DS9 rewatch right now. Don't worry, TNG is coming up. I'm just going to synchronize it with the 30th anniversary.
1: Okay, good, good, good.
2: But, I, but trust me, I do love TNG a lot. I'm just in the middle of a DS9 rewatch. Yeah. Although, sorry, DS9 is my favorite. But TNG is not too far behind. <laughs> but no, DS9 is my favorite.
1: Yeah. And Richard, what about you?
0: Well, um, everyone can get a hold of me on Facebook. I'm on the Babel Conference. I pop in here and there, cause a little trouble. And I'm also on Twitter. My handle is XRansom.
1: And you can find me on Twitter where I tweet next generation, to be clear. <laughs> and that is at Miss Amy Nelson. But my favorite place is on the Babel Conference. So look for me there and the fun comments and discussions that we have there. We had quite the heated discussion just recently with Nemesis. So that's coming up. Hint, hint. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey.
0: Today is a good day to die.
1: Great joy and gratitude.